All right, welcome to the Razor's Edge. We are doing a special episode. We, with the madness around GameStop, around heavily shorted stocks, around Robinhood, all this stuff happening this week. Do it. Of course, we have my co-host, Akram's Razor. We also have Jamie joining us, an experienced short seller who has been on the podcast before, talked in Vitae sometime more than a year ago, and last fall we talked about this sort of SPAC environment and everything. Nicola, Nicola. That's right. That's, so, <laughs> so, Which, guys, by the way, these days looks like a, a legitimate, solid value value play. Blue chip, right. <laughs> so GameStop, let's, I, to me, the fundamentals around GameStop are kind of the most obvious, but Jamie, I understand you've done some work here in the past, so I'll, I'll start there. Just like the fact that GameStop sort of the center of this, what do you guys make of the company of? Yeah, I, I think the fundamentals for GameStop are terrible. And it's incredibly obvious to everyone in this business that that's the case. And that's why this was such a heavily shorted stock is because there are a, a number of investment funds who primarily short by finding companies that they believe are secular decliners, which means that the business is going away and the underlying stock is therefore worthless and will be worth nothing in the future. And I think this was the stock around which there's a very high consensus that this is the case. You know, obviously department stores fall into that category, something like Pitney Bowes that makes mail meters and obviously email is displacing paper mail, et cetera. But the biggest trend here is the substitution of digital downloads for physical copies of video games. And GameStop makes over 100% of its operating income from buying and reselling just games, right? And so historically, the model would be you buy a game for $60, you play it, you, f- you finish it, you bring it back to GameStop, they give you 30 to 40. They then put it back on the shelves at 50 or $55. The next person buys it. It's just kind of like blockbuster in that way. It's really more like a rental model than a, than a sales model. And because they could capture those margins, I think on average, they resold that new game 11 times. And that was all their margin, obviously, then that was very profitable. and was a great business. And that's going away. Right now you download a game, there's nothing to return. And so I think the business, especially once the new consoles are fully fully deployed and platforms such as Steam or Epic or all these other ones are fully rolled out to people's you know, people's kind of gaming centers, then there's no business left for GameStop. And what they're left with is a bunch of liabilities, a bunch of inventory they can't sell. And every aspect of their business is, you know, is shrinking. And and people would say, well, they do have a digital business, but really their digital business is reselling effectively gift cards for people who can't get, you know, don't have a way to, to kind of put money on a credit card with which to buy a game on Steam or, or a game on the on the PlayStation store or something. And those those problems are going to be solved. Uh, and are, are you seeing this? Are you seeing this coming? <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you. Citron to discontinue short-selling research. <laughs> that's what well, he's doing right now at 9 o'clock in the morning. But it's just coming across the wire wow. at CNBC. Wow. Yeah, let's finish game stuff and we'll come back to that. Because I think there's, a, there's an important... Well, there's something important about that announcement. There's something just obviously self-serving about it also. But, you know, so GameStop, that the point is everyone with, you know, a history of analyzing companies looks at this company and says, this is worth nothing. There's This is the archetypal buggy whip. And that's why everyone was short of it. And I think that one of the ironies, actually, of all the kind of Robin Hood, millennial, WSB crowd 
rallying around GameStop is because they, they don't really know the business. They might be familiar with it. They might have bought a game there. They don't really know how kind of GameStop has screwed them in the past. I mean, GameStop back when package software was a, you know, was the pri- primary way of getting people games was the dominant player. They had over 50% of the market five years ago. And publishers like like Sony or some someone else would want to come out and and discount games, GameStop would say no. And they would, you know, basically force the publishers to play by this model where they sold at $60 because that's how GameStop made all their money. Right. So GameStop was stopping publishers from saying, hey, if I if I go direct download, I can sell the same game for for 30 or 40 bucks and make as much money as selling through GameStop. And GameStop basically in, in my view, kind of monopolistically or anti-competitively, force those publishers to to keep the list price high so that their model could be uh, sustained. And so all these gamers who have been overpaying for games for the last decade have been doing so because of GameStop's corporate strategy. And now they're the ones who are not only helping GameStop dramatically, but they're kind of trying to keep GameStop in business. So I, I find that a little bit of an irony, personally. Yeah, it feels like, you know, there's so many different when we're dealing with the money involved here, and I know, I don't think we'll waste our time with you on it, but Akram has talked about this with AMC, like there's still money moving around and there's still, the big guys are still winning on one side of the trade or the other. Do you make anything, I mean, there were, the last maybe GameStop focused thing, Michael Burry obviously was long GameStop for a while. It's yet to be seen whether he was still long going into 2021 but like there was i I would assume he's not based on his disclosures recently about like this is bullshit and (laughs) sec should investigate and whatever right so there's we can draw that conclusion i do think to rewind for one second so jamie just laid out essentially a thesis that i mean he obviously did a lot of work on this thing in the past i had shorted this stock maybe 2012 2013 on far less work but you know, a general secular decline thesis, not like not a fraud, just like Blockbuster, because I had shorted Blockbuster. We've discussed that in the past, right? So that's a good analogy. What I would like to bring up with with, with Jamie here, which which I haven't had the chance to talk with him about, is what drove people interested in the stock. And I don't know how much time you spent on Wall Street bets, but I followed this guy, uh, Deep Fucking Value, or whatever, whatever the name is, the guy who's you know gone from yeah. fifty thousand to forty million on, on it, and. If you go back to like when this guy started outlining his thesis and when I, I watched it the first time or whatever, maybe like a year ago or a year and a half ago or whatever it was in 2019, this is a value investor type guy. And his initial thesis was kind of cigar butt with the console, with the valuation. So like if that guy, I mean, if you'd watched, I don't know if you ever watched his video, the Kitty Hawking YouTube one where he outlined his thesis last summer. I did not know. Okay. So, I mean, he basically w- will acknowledge everything you just said. When his thesis started in 2019, before Burry came in, it was that the console game cycle would, m- would move. And if the 2020 July video, he's like, it started out with like, I can't believe the stock is under $4 and like we're three months away from the first consoles refresh in, you know, a decade. So, and that and that shows a fundamental misunderstanding of their business, right? Because they correct. don't make any money on consoles and the new consoles are going to, you know, absolutely, make, make, absolutely make, right. Make, so yeah. you, okay. you like this is this was something that let's call it a person who has not done the level of work you have done on the business, but is a value person. He's done securities analysis. So he's screened at it. He's looked at the financials of the company, which Burry did the same thing, essentially speaking, when he outlined his pitch. It was like buy back some stock 
he definitely did not get into what you've gotten into with the business. He was like, you've misallocated capital. Amazon bought Twitch. You bought a wireless stop shop in 2014. So Amazon bought whatever it's called, the GameStink or whatever in 17, and you're now selling Spring Wireless and return $700 million in cash. The console cycle is coming up. He was pressuring them to suck some money out. And he was like, your price per share, earnings per share would go up significantly. And you're heavily shorted because of the, of the way you are, because you've actually been poor capital allocators. Well, I, get your, I get your structural decline, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So I, 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 I didn't, I just kind of skimmed that 13D. But look, I think that the reality is when GameStop was, was at the three, four, five dollar level, it was trading at under one times EBITDA. Now that EBITDA ended up dropping dramatically, but nonetheless, it was literally under one times EBITDA and they had a lot of debt, but a lot of cash. And so from a financial engineering perspective, you could argue that as a short-term gain, you should dividend out or buy back a lot of shares. And that would, in the short term, increase the value of the stock. Now, GameStop management, I think is fair to say, has not been dealt a great hand. They have done a bad job. I do think buying cellular stores was was especially AT&T cellular stores was was you know an obvious mistake but you know they were kind of desperate you know getting into collectibles hasn't been a disaster but collectibles well I mean, under covid that's that's actually not been to, bad for gross profit but yeah sorry continue yeah they, but you don't get the turns to actually justify the the shelf space so anyway the, the point is they haven't done a terrible job they haven't done a great job but really i think what what he was advocating was engage in some financial engineering and get the stock price up short term and then then you have some options. Then you can issue more shares, right? And, and then kind of get, get this game. And I think management, for better or for worse, you know, didn't do that. And has really been focused on kind of trying to be, you know, trying to stay relevant instead of trying to play a financial engineering game. But look, I think that I think the core here is what, what everyone has identified, which is there's this, there's an element, there are three, I think, intertwined aspects here. One is everyone hates hedge funds. And, and kind of the correlate to that is everyone hates short sellers. Why? I don't think people really know why. I think you hate hedge funds because they're wealthy people or you assume they're wealthy people uh, and therefore they must be bad. And, you know, you hate short sellers. Again, unclear why that is. It seems somehow wrong. You're not quite you know, sure how to, how to put that into words, but, you know, they must be bad because I was a long Nicola and they caused me to lose money. And we can get into that. I think that's one of the fallacies that short sellers have done a very bad job rebutting. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a real shame, but that's one aspect of it. And then the second aspect of it is, here's an opportunity to make money because the shares are so heavily shorted, we can start a short squeeze. And that thesis has gone around in the past. Obviously, if you think back to 2008 and Porsche's kind of cornering the market in Volkswagen, they had the same exact thing. Uh, you have a heavily shorted stock, over 100% of the shares are short. Now there, the difference was that Porsche controlled the shares and therefore called in the borrow and kind of forced that short squeeze here, it was a little bit more organic in a way. But basically, because of the dynamics of how short selling work, because of the, you know, the, the stock loan mechanics, you can artificially get the price of a security high by causing people who are short to, to blow through their risk limits and therefore be forced buyers of the stock. And that is something that quants have done for a while. That's something that, you know, larger institutions done for a while. This is not the first time that it's been done by kind of the little guy. And it probably won't be the last, but it's always a risk. And I think people who are short GameStop, you know, obviously underestimated that risk, but nonetheless did, did understand it. And then the third thing I think is really the main motivator here is it's gambling. It's a way for people to 
make bets, make bets with very large potential payoffs. As you said, turning 50 grand into 40 million is a really nice, uh, really yeah, so nice payoff. Let's, re- let's rewind there on that for a second. I mean, I, I, I love where you're taking this, but so deep fucking value, this, this former back office finance guy, investment advisor on the side, if you watch him, he's actually a very remarkable guy. He, he's quite transparent with his thesis. I might be wrong. Tell me what you think. He's put it out there. He's done a lot of work. He's been really interested in it. He obviously has not known how to do the type of work you and a hedge fund would have done on this, okay, in the past to approach it. So he kind of had this like his hobby type thesis going on the side of this job, which started with cigarette butt, entry price, catalyst games, a console cycle, et cetera. Now, what's interesting about this is that you and I both know that he's wrong. He hasn't looked at what's driving operating him. He hasn't really understood the model. But once Burry came in, that was like a little bit of a sprinkle on top, the reputation of a former short seller to be in the stock and talking about it. And that added a a higher degree. But what this guy has done that's really been impressive from my standpoint is month after month after month, he has been rolling this consistent position. I mean, he, he's bought like a, he had bought long-term calls 16 months or 18 months out or whatever. And people would be, you know, and, and like, you, you know how this works on Seeking Alpha, Daniel. I mean, I see you deal with people. He'd get trolled and he's a perfectly affable, likable guy. And he'd be like, look, like, this is what I think. And this is the work I've done. And I, I'm just putting it out there for the world. So the transparency element of what he's done from his thesis as this thing persisted, has definitely resonated with the type of people who read these message boards. And for someone like me, you know, who started out early on when I was trading on Yahoo Finance message boards and and moving on to Wall Street bets, you know, I, I kind of I understand that part of that world. But his thesis had to be just wrong enough analysis wise, but also resonate enough with the type of people who would argue for like a cigarette butt trade. And who would look at a balance sheet and say, well, the, the cash is greater than the debt. Here's what's going on. Here's what I'm paying. It's 0.5 book value. First refresh in seven years. What more can I lose? Now, what's interesting about him here, he still hasn't closed the position, okay? Which that's what it takes it out of. He somewhere along the lines entered into the realm of this trade because he definitely, if you watched him over the years, he's like, look. I know the console, I know digital, I know that, but he would go and he'd find like an internet forum and it'd be like, look, all these people are still buying hardware. We haven't moved to digital yet. You know, those little things that a person would do to try to reinforce a thesis and put it out there. But like now at whatever it is, you know, bigger than Best Buy, what, 30 billion, 35 billion? I have no idea what's, what, what, any, any clue what the market cap is right now? Yeah, it's like 25 or 30. Okay, so at that level, this guy hasn't come out and said, I'm going to close. Now he's been like, it's shifted into YOLO. And this is where you get into like the bargaining problem of like a bunch of us get in a room and we agree we're going to do something for fun. But now it's his his fun position is a yacht, right? So like, and it's for a person like, you know, he's put, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollar home with meager guy. And he's been, and he's out there now, uh, transparent about the, he's not a hedge fund guy. He's in finance. He's interested. He's definitely, I would describe him as an interesting cat as far as uh, a passion. Passionate is the word I'd look for. You can definitely watching him. What I like about him is I'm like, th- th- this guy is really into what he's doing and he's passionate about it. And 
he's just he's been sharing like it's almost been a journey. And that's where you get into this whole power of the Internet type of thing along these lines. But for the people reading it and following it, they start to view it as his has his thesis as being vindicated. And what's interesting about this thing is that, well, he had to be just wrong enough to do the type of work that follows him along these lines. And then he had to have some reinforcement, which, you know, the first one was Burry. The second one is obviously the founder of Chewy. And then the third one becomes Shamath Palpatia and, the, and these other guys coming out and being like, you know what? What's wrong with the GameStop? I, I read his work. I, I, I went on Wall Street Best for 24 hours, <laughs> not well, for the last two years. Right. But I, I guess, you know, just to kind of get into it, to what you just said, I mean, Yes, he had he had a reasonable thesis. That thesis played out, and so when the stock was at fifteen, he should have sold, and he didn't. And then the question is, okay, why not? And why, you know, why is Jamath in there, and why is it? And and I think that this has really morphed, and the reason it's on, you know, the, well, this is where Shamath, Shamath saying that he's better than a hedge fund analyst, and the work on Wall Street bets, him spending one night on there, is I I find that problematic because, well. This guy doesn't but, understand what's going on with GameStop. We just went over that. Yeah, and look, I think that the reality is the stock market has always been, you know, a, a connection between a price on a screen and the value of the share that the underlying business that that represents. And there's always been a tether, and that tether is sometimes tight and it's sometimes loose, and sometimes the market's a, a weighing machine and sometimes a voting machine. And I think we've definitely seen that. And, and business models of many investment advisors are. Hey, when that tether stretches too much and the value becomes too detached from the price, we are going to try and bet on a, re a reversion to the mean, which over time and as, and as earning cycles and, and capital movements come in, that does happen. And so you have this kind of flip between highly correlated value to stock price to zero correlation between value and stock price, which is maybe where we were a month ago, certainly in some names. And now what you've gotten, and this is the really new development, is you've gotten a negative correlation. Right now you said, hey, the worse the business is, in fact, it's better if it's not even a real business, right? You you can look at some of the the recent stuff. Well, like it's not a question of not being even real. They went back and bought nostalgic businesses. No, no, no but I'm right? saying like, like as a trading vehicle, and BlackBerry. as a trading vehicle, costs and new concept energy and GameStop. The worse they are as a business, that means they have the, the lowest share price, and that means they have probably the highest short interest, and therefore they are the best trading vehicles. So now you've gotten to this point where the tether is not only stretched; it's literally inverted. And it's re and and again going back to what is the purpose of the stock market? I think a lot of people would say, well, it's just a casino anyway, and it's a rigged casino, and the big guys win. And I, I think what people misunderstand about that is the big guys win because of the fee structure, not because they're better at picking stocks, right? And so saying, oh, now we're better at, at picking stocks than the big guys. The big guys are never good at picking stocks. The big guys are just good at, at, at charging fees. But nonetheless, everyone's like, oh, it's a casino anyway. So this is just another flavor of it being casino. What's the problem? And the problem is. If the regulators let the stock market turn into this type of a casino, it is basically saying mob rule is how we're going to determine how our financial system operates. And there are implications to that. And there are financial stability elements to that. And I think everyone's kind of having a great time and Dave Portnoy is having a great time and Elon Musk having a great time and everything else. But the reality is if the market doesn't function and it's not an effective way for companies to raise capital and it's, it's not something in which people have have any sort of confidence that it's a fair and reasonable reflection, that you're not actually investing in businesses that will grow your capital at their kind of return on equity, give or take, you're now putting your money into a casino. Well, I think it's a very, it's a very different element. And honestly, like if you were 
a Russian secret service agent and you came to Putin and said, hey, what would be a good way to destabilize the American financial system? You'd be like, hey, why don't we cause a massive short squeeze and kind of get the rich to hate the, you know, and, and the poor to fight and, and kind of destabilize the entire concept of the American market. And that'd be great. And we could do it for almost nothing. And so what these, what these day traders are doing is, uh, I think, really destructive. And I, and I say that not you know, out of out of a sense of moral outrage, because obviously it's not it's not about morality. It, the the Bolsheviks there. <laughs> well, it's just, and, and again, I'm not saying that I, I'm I'm a big fan of redistributing wealth, and I'm a big fan of farming Wall Street and all that. But you know, there's a there's a there's a point at which you say, wait, is this actually what? And and by the way, they're all going to lose money, right? Eventually, GameStop will go to zero or go to whatever value of cash they happen to cash out while they can. Right, so but, the point what, the point you're making is really actually very interesting with respect to what's happened with AMC, right? So AMC's situation is essentially it has not been. This is when you get into the last step before bankruptcy. Now it becomes make me a meme stock, and maybe that'll fix my problems, right? Yeah, seems like it. So if I if I can rest, if I need to restructure, I, I think like people would look at AMC today. And I, I made a comment. I, I've chosen to pick on AMC on Twitter, just following it. And by the way, I love the movies. Everybody knows that. And I, I've made, been made fun of for that. <laughs> love, love the movies, hate the popcorn price. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I've, I've gotten, I've gotten shit for the, the idea that the movies come back and, 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 and an event scenario. But what I think has been interesting about, about AMC is that, I mean, it was a very over leveraged in a dire straits business before COVID. And you, you wouldn't get anybody who would argue about AMC under COVID. And it, the situation under COVID has been so bad that it's made sense from a recovery standpoint for the creditors to try to make it to the other side of COVID. And in the process of doing that, people look at it and you know the converts were trading at 20 cents on the dollar for the longest time while the equity was bouncing around earlier in the summer. And it was just like a matter of, well, we know that they're not filing not because it doesn't need to be restructured and the equity is worthless, they're not filing because the lenders don't, they're not in the business of sitting on a theater chain in the midst of a pandemic, <laughs> you know, and who you're going to sell it to or what you're going to do with it is it, it's, it's made more sense to, to try to keep this thing together with the support that has been provided by the government liquidity wise to get to the other side to then fix the problem. Now, what's interesting with what they've done is this is a company that as of right now, today I'm looking at it, and Silver Lake exercised the 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 convert at thirteen fifty or whatever yesterday, but it's got an enterprise value today of like fourteen billion dollars, maybe, or is that what is that? Probably roughly that thirteen billion, which is significantly higher than its peak enterprise value in its history. So when a person commented yesterday, and, and but it was like you're being, you can take a dump on this all you want, but you're being intellectually dishonest. If you don't think that it could, once COVID is gone with the recovery, trade up to $20, 15 to $20. And I'm like, well. So it just doesn't have the right share count. Yeah. Well, I mean, whatever, whatever he hasn't figured out yet, I mean, the share count's gone from 50 million to 400, you know, almost essentially speaking, in the blink of an eye in like the last five weeks. But if we start looking at a business like that, and we say anything can be a short squeeze or a certain dynamic. It, this is not the first time I've look, we've looked at a security and joked about how its price is crazy because of mechanical elements of the stock market. But the value of a business, like you said, you know, raising capital is very important. So when people make fun of the short sellers or whatever, short and distorted, and you've seen a bunch of CEOs 
pile on them. Like the Shopify guy yesterday was like, I short and distort people create nothing. You know, that narrative. I, I, we start companies and, and companies are run by people and they create things. And it's like, look, if you're a public company, you, you're, your stock price does not reflect the creation of things. It reflects the perception of the future. And it's a side bet, essentially well, yeah. speaking at times. Can I, can I uh, let, me, let me take a small deviation from there, which is, look, I, I think there are different flavors of short selling. And I think what, again, has been badly misrepresented and, and badly marketed and badly misunderstood is that short sellers, the profit that a short seller make isn't coming from anyone else, right? It's not like if a company is a fraud, right? The stock's at $20 and it's going to come out in two days that it's a fraud and, and it's worth zero. And then the stock will go to zero and everyone who holds that stock will be left with something that's worthless. If a short seller borrows shares the day before that and release a report saying the same thing, that profit goes to the short seller, but no one loses the profit. The, the stock just drops one day earlier than it would have otherwise. Everyone who was long the stock would have lost all that their money anyway, right? So the idea that a short seller is somehow profiting from their loss is just totally misguided because they're going to lose that money anyway if the short seller is correct. Now, there are degrees of that. If you come out and you short and distort, and I think you know Shopify was a Citron target, and Shopify was you know the front end of a lot of kind of nefarious businesses, but that was still a pretty bad short thesis because that wasn't the majority of what they were doing. That having been said, I'm sure that after that short report came, Shopify put in stricter measures so they were not enabling illegal businesses. So my guess is some good came of that report anyway. And there are definitely short sellers who are not the best people and are, are trying to make money and doing it for their own for their own benefit and not for the benefit of of increasing transparency. That hasn't been said. I do talk to a lot of the activist short sellers. And what's interesting about the current dynamic, there are actually legitimate short sellers out there who are uncovering frauds. And I happen to know there is one that there is a fraud currently, and there's a report on a fraud that would, would have been published in the near future. And that report is not going to be published. The reason for that is you don't know what will happen. You know, you could easily have disgruntled shareholders come out and say, oh, screw you. Like you shorted the stock, then you publish this report, and therefore we're going to bid the stock up. And so it, it could either a, a it can be very unprofitable, B, it could be counterproductive in the current environment. The reality is this company filed a uh, an S1. They're going to cash out hundreds of millions of dollars in the next few weeks. And so as a result, as a direct result, I would say, of this uh, silliness, the public will be defrauded of hundreds of millions of dollars. And short sellers would have profited from exposing that. And I think it's reasonable that they get paid something for the effort and the risk and the personal you know, attacks they endure. But nonetheless, there is a negative consequence here. And it's not a, you know, it's not like short sellers are heroes, but honestly, many more short sellers, I think, are, are heroes than many long owners. And yet, the short sellers are vilified here. And I think it's, it's really a shame that there is no constituency to understand how this works. There's no, you know, marketing consultant or public relations, you know, effort on the part of the community because there's no, it's just not big enough to matter. Uh, but the reality is there are a ton of frauds. A lot of these SPACs are merging with frauds. There's no diligence because the SPAC process allows you to basically come public, make massive projections without any underwriting, without any, any even a junior analyst in investment bank checking that work. And the public is going to be defrauded. I think this is going to be as big as the Chinese reverse merger stuff in the 2012, 2013. And the public's going to walk away and say, oh, huh, maybe just buying a fraudulent company without knowing anything and kind of taking this, this perverse delight in that we're you know, burning the short sellers by you know, driving the price of a, of a fraudulent company's stock up. 
which by the way, started with Tesla. I think we can all agree that that's how this all began and, and kind of a lot of them are conflating it all. Yeah, I think it's gonna it's it's all gonna end badly. Yeah, no, I mean, I I agree with you, and it, that's like some people will just call you a Debbie Downer and saying the same thing. It's all gonna end badly, and and that's where you get into the Shamath Palpatia argument of Elon Musk was right, the Wall Street bets crowd who traded, you know, who's behind Elon Musk is right, and I'm right, and Bitcoin is right, and Tesla is right, and the establishment is wrong. But yeah. I I have a hedge fund and I own a basketball team, and I'm essentially IPOing companies as a deal maker on a regular basis. So when you get into that tension in the system, like I'm not going to fault a guy who has read Benjamin Graham, looked at GameStop, and not been two steps up to get credit card data and go visit the company and hire people and do investor calls and understand the entire video game industry dynamics and supply chain, the fundamental research, but have a thesis and like put it together, be completely transparent about his journey and other people find that interesting. But when you, when you have people get on CNBC and say that the fact that the short interest, for example, let's start with the first piece of misinformation. There's almost been a consensual opinion that because GameStop had 130, 140% short interest relative to its float, that something nefarious was going on. That right. you know, just a basic understanding of, the, yes. of how things work. Sure. Yep. So this is completely incorrect, and people don't understand how stock borrow works, how rebates work, how a short seller pays. That the higher that the short interest goes, the much higher. I mean, the exponential rate, essentially speaking, the borrow cost goes up, which is a hurdle that is in the way of a return for anyone shorting the stock. I mean, I have typically never shorted anything with a 20% plus short interest in my life, to tell you the truth. Because the general view is once you get into that area, it's a consensus failure. So- yeah, And I think, I think that the academic data would show that actually until maybe the last two years, when, when again, this kind of coordinated get shorty, you know, either through the quant community or through the, the, the retail community. Before that, I'm sure the data, if the data were updated, it would be different now, but those stocks underperformed the most. Anything with a high short interest underperformed the market by the greater degree, greatest extent. But a large portion of those returns were eaten up by the negative rebate that you had to pay to short those stocks. So the shorts were right, but the shorts didn't make much money. And so the, the dominant strategy is just to not be along those stocks, actually. Now, in the last year, clearly the dominant strategy has been to long, be long the most heavily shorted stocks possible. So we'll see how that goes longer term. But for, for now, that, that's been turned on its head. What I'm curious about is the... You, you mentioned the quant funds there and earlier, and I'm curious how you guys think about what makes this period different. Because like you said, on the short side, presumably, Akram, you've just said that you stay away from 20% shorts. Jamie, you've just shared the data that shows that you're not making a lot of money on those on the GameStops of the world. So I guess there's like a tactical element if you're a short seller. But even from like, what do you guys, why is this so different than quant funds and I, you know, we've had famous short squeezes. You're seeing them all pop. Some guy tweeted about Piggly Wiggly a hundred years ago. There's obviously what happened with the German car companies in the 2000s. Like this does happen. And sometimes yeah, I mean, that was a very unique degrees. scenario in terms of between Porsche and VW. And that was more, I'd say, a cunning maneuver by, uh, the Porsche chairman at, at the time with what was going on in a wrestle there. But 
and certain dynamics in the market. But we've always had stocks that have there's little periods of risk where something on paper looks really silly and is so heavily shorted, and it's on paper really appealing, but you can't even go near it because in practice, the borrow is not there. Right. Yeah, like Tilray at 300 yes, whatever. Exactly. So like yeah. these things are dynamic. So, but what I think is different this time, which has to do a lot with COVID, which I, which would be something that would be interesting, which I don't think you've seen on CNBC. You, you haven't seen someone like Shamath, who's, who's, who's clearly has the resources and is a sophisticated, highly intelligent guy, get into. But the option market got way bigger in a lot of these stocks than the underlying existing market that existed for it over the last several years. That the concept of a hundred thousand people or, or or whatever, I think uh, I was talking to a, a friend of mine, Jordan, mentioned is like you know it's like a million people buy a thousand dollar option, and what does that do? The, the the gamma squeeze element you haven't seen that discussed on yeah. CNBC, right? Right. The and gamma squeeze and the coordination through these chat rooms together correct. has has you know because any institutional investor you could say well these guys also buy stocks or pitch stocks and then somehow manipulate, but even a big fund getting into a position would have maybe bought, you know, $500 million worth of something, right? Whereas you could argue that GameStop traders trade $30 billion of stock a day through the, you know, the Delta through their options, right? So it's a, it's an order of magnitude difference. Yeah. Correct. So when you look at it from that, that hasn't, that, that hasn't been a debate. And this is where you, if you take AMC trading where it's traded or BlackBerry and these other names coordinated by Bath & Beyond, et cetera, that have followed GameStop, a person doing work or allocating capital with an investment committee or, or professionally working has accountability to the people who he's running money for. And they're going to have to sit there and be like, they can't just say, part of the challenge in that business is you can't just say, well, what if, right? I mean, in the case of, for example, AMC, if you know the business, you know that there is no if, what if. The creditors would have, for, this company is operating in, in, in violation of its waivers and its covenants. And if it made sense to force it into bankruptcy and take that equity for themselves, they have the control to do that. So you're dealing with situations in the market that are the consequence of AMC was like a, a $40, $50 million market cap company. That's what you were dealing with a year ago. So at the bottom of all this COVID. So for that to go to 8 billion, in market cap and trade 1 billion shares in a day tells you that you have had a structural change in the market. And this is what people haven't talked about that much since we went to zero on commissions and all this Robin Hood stuff and then COVID. COVID turning trading into entertainment. And that's yeah. and, and this idea of where do the regulators, it's not a question necessarily, which I thought when, I don't know if you watched the Shamath Wapner CNBC thing, did you? I did not, no. Okay, so I mean, I like, the I mean, yeah. there was a point where, where Scott, I mean, was I, I don't think he did a really good job of it, but he was like, you know, at some point there's it's it's not the people who had the thesis on GameStop or or the couple guys on on Wall Street bets who got into it to start. At some point, my phone starts ringing, and like a person I've been talking to in a while messages me and is like, you know, can this happen with SLV? Can can I do this with this? What if I just buy that, right? And they're willing to put these are these are not Wall Street betters. These are people who think, okay, riches are there. They can be had in this market. And at somewhere in the chain, somebody puts their life savings into it. And we are in we are in an economy right now that the Federal Reserve has essentially sidestepped this. They're like, look, we're supporting the economy. We don't care about the speculation. Okay. Right. 
And we have to support the economy till COVID is over because people have to eat. And I mean, I was just joking about I went to get firewood and the price of firewood's up 50% in like two weeks, literally. <laughs> yeah, there's a, lot of st- there's a lot of weird stuff happening. I think a lot of people though, to your point, you know, you're saying, okay, well, the whole system's going to burn down and, you know, you've got the Zimbabwe, you know, mentality and, and uh, everything else. So why not just, as again, yeah, Elon Musk today right, t- changing his profile to, to Bitcoin, Bitcoin and like yeah, essentially endorsing it. But, but what's so, but all this, I think this is going back to how I started the conversation, which is, this is just a way to gamble. And I don't think, you know, I think if the same exact thing happened where you could kind of squeeze someone and make money and realize, you know, 10,000% returns, and the victims in that case were not uh, hedge funds, but were pension funds, I think people would still do it because, hey, they're, they're big boys. We can take money from them too. And by the way, the largest investors in hedge funds are pension funds. So you know the fact that Melvin lost $6 billion or whatever, yeah, it's not Gabe who lost that money. It's the pension funds who lost that money. So let's kind of remember who the underlying investors are. But I think going back to your point about the options and, and kind of the change dynamics, it's going to be really in- incredible to see today, actually. I think today will be a great window because you're going to have a dynamic where you've got billions and billions of expiring options. And then the underlying guy, so you paid 10 bucks for a you know, 100 strike option, and now that thing's worth 300 bucks, and you got to come out of pocket to buy it. Are you going to come out of pocket to buy it and hold the shares? And I would say 100% no. You're going to sell your option. So I think all these guys, obviously, who intended to make money on the options did so saying, okay, it's a trading vehicle. Not a, you know, not Correct. really something. It's a tail wagging the dog type of thing but changing. The options the implied, market can't be bigger. Right. But now the implied vols, you know, for next week's options are like five, six hundred percent. So now you, are you going to roll? I don't think you are. And so I think today you're going to get a massive selling, and I don't think anyone's rolling. And so it'll be interesting to see how today trades, but I think this could be the beginning of the end, honestly. And I just want to, because I have to go in a few minutes, I want to make a few more points about the whole. Um, dynamic also, which is, you know, I went on Wall Street Bets and I read some of the stuff, not a lot, but then I tried to post something. And what I posted was, hey, guys, you understand that this sends badly, take profits. I agree, F the man, whatever, but this is going to end badly. And you should, you know, you should understand that this is a zero sum game. And the moderators didn't reject the post. And then I went and said, okay, maybe they won't let me post. Let me go comment on someone else's post and said kind of the same thing. It was like, hey, guys, you know, just so you know, this you could lose all your money, take some profit, and they rejected the comment. And my point is that part of this is not just a passive. You know, there is a there is a market manipulation element here to it. And you could say, well, that's difficult to prove because it's not you know the Hunt brothers and the silver you know market or George Soros or the, the British pound or whatever. It's you know millions of people and probably a, a, you know <laughs> among a hundred different countries. But it's still a manipulation, right? It's still everyone saying, hey guys, let's push the price of this that we know is not worth this on a fundamental basis. Let's push it higher just for the sake of pushing it higher. Yeah, but doesn't um, like, so, I mean, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't like, I mean, what's the thesis that, what's his name? Beautiful mind, John Nash, sorry. Nash Equilibrium. Yeah. Doesn't that solve, if we all yeah. agree, if the three of us get together and we agree on this, all right, and then the value of our side bet for entertainment, like let's put $50 on this game, turns into a house or two houses, all right? And I say, and you tell me, Akram, you can't sell. Till me and Daniel sell, right, and right. I, and I'm like, okay, and then we all get off the phone, and we're like, all right, but this thing is worthless, and it's probably going to be worth. It solves itself. Well, that's why I think at two o'clock today, it's going to be really interesting because that's everyone's going to go through that dynamics. We're like, okay, everyone else is selling, no one else is going to hold their options. I better sell now, before everyone else does, right? Or one o'clock, or whenever that kicks in. So I think it's going to be 
you know, who knows what happens this morning, but uh, I think this afternoon is going to get a little choppy. But yeah, you're right. So in that case, maybe it's not coordinated because they're not coordinating the sale. And I don't know the, the legality behind it. But my point is, you know, what, what Reddit has done and what the moderators of that forum have done, have created an echo chamber where it's not really a discussion. It's a, you know, let's say there were, I don't know how common it was, but if other people were trying to post negative comments and trying to in, in, inject a sense of, hey guys, you know, maybe we're, this is a little too much, maybe let's not coordinate to manipulate the stock up uh, and they reject and they don't allow those comments to be posted. Then I wonder if there's liability. Yeah, so, there. You, so you have to right. go through a period where you've established some karma credibility and whatever to be able to post certain things in there. So I don't necessarily know that you're being rejected because of any type of content it may just be that like you haven't hit the period where you can post something well the the, the rejection said it was because of the content okay but i mean I, either or i get I, I get your point so anyway so i think you know that the all this stuff is fascinating and i think you know that the the aoc getting involved and not understanding how collateral rules work at, at robin hood and, and all this stuff you know is really just another example of Look, there's a mob mentality. You know, we we basically just went through four years where truth didn't matter, where marching on the Capitol and and invading the Capitol building was a encouraged thing by by the president of the United States. And yes, there is an anti Wall Street, anti wealthy person ethos that's being encapsulated here, which I, I understand. And I I, um, I mean, do you find you know, it I, odd that like the persons, the people celebrating, you know, their their financial performance and in investing in the year, the world's richest man, uh, and these types of like whatever you want to call it, futurists are are reinforcing this because part of this no, uh, to no, a degree comes exactly back it. to Tesla because they, they know. Look, as you said, Chamath is a is a master publicist. He's, he spent his career in Facebook trying learning how to manipulate people and teaching how to manipulate people, right? And he knows that his future depends on him being seen as one of the people, not one of the wealthy, because he's selling the people these quasi-fraudulent investment products. And so, yeah, you have to be a man of the person if you're wealthy. Same thing with, with Musk, right? The reason Musk is hated is because he's a fraud. The reason Musk is loved is because he's got a vision. He's got a narrative of saving the world. And so the, the, the regular person doesn't understand the financial liberties that Musk has taken over his career. It's like, why, why is everyone hating on this guy? He's, he's a good guy. He's saving the planet. And the people who have spent the years dealing with him lying to their faces and making material financial misstatements, those people are like, hey, this isn't fair. This fraudster is getting away with it. And, and they're both right, right? It just kind of comes down to, well, do the ends justify the means? And you know, a lot of the people who are shorter were like, no, they don't. You, gotta, you actually have to tell the truth on the way from A to B. And a lot of the, the community who support Musk is like, no, obviously the, the end is more important. And so you have this, all these dynamics, but look, at the end of the day, the guys who are rich because they have the popular, you know, same thing as Trump, right? Like, why did he get elected? It wasn't because he was the most qualified person for the job. He got elected because he appealed to the kind of the animal instincts of the crowd. And basically what that means is there's a mob mentality that is governing politics and business right now. And that to me is inherently scary because it doesn't just stay in these, in these you know, kind of little communities. It doesn't just stay in, the, you know, in GameStop. It goes to the next thing and the next thing, and uh, and mob power is, I don't know, I I, I can't think I, of. I mean, and so, so I mean, th that's the thing here is, I mean, do you, I don't look at this scenario right now and say Melvin Capital is going to have a hard time or his life is going to change, right? 
Okay. Sure. And I There's don't look in the scenario at, at, at funds that are going to be for that got shut down because they had to degross their book, which the short side of their book relative to the long side, no one talks about these elements, but the collateral damage essentially in the market, the, the irony of, I was joking with a, with a friend about this on Monday or Tuesday, Tuesday, I think it was, was that any stock that was up more than 5%, if you were a CEO of that company or on the board, the market just told you that you're you're a, a stock that nobody wants to own. <laughs> you had one day where everything that people had been buying on on a narrative or on fundamentals, let's call it, was down, and anything that was you know whether it was the meme name from GameStop to something like a Bed Bath and Beyond that had been hated or 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 structurally in a decline. Let's look at it that way. So anything that was in the worst names in SaaS, Box, for example, Dropbox, as far as having been out of favor, something that you knew that in, in, in a book that's long, short SaaS, somebody was short this and long that for, the, for, for a while, because that has worked for several years. So to see that actually impact the market, the, the, the rest of the market actually went down because people essentially had to, who are responsible for managing money, look at the market and say, what's happening right now is irrational. So I need to just reduce my aggregate exposure to everything in proportion. Yep. That's part of it for sure. But trying to understand why the market goes up or down these days, I think is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we get it. It's, uh, little, little I've had plenty of experiences in the last year. And, and part of that goes into that. Look, I mean, to me, a learning lesson here is that if you can move stocks like GameStop and AMC and, and whatever to these levels because of a gamma squeeze and because of what's going on in the option. People have been talking about how much options trading exploded. Like the average Robinhood trader per dollar is, you know, trades 25 times as much in options as anybody else in any other account. And, and, and I think there is something to be said in, in Robinhood, you can't short a stock. You know, it's just, it's, it's structured in, you know, to be long physically or to trade options. And there's been a lot of talk about the incentives and if you're not paying for a commission. But when you look at the fact that this market exploded as it did, the one stock that for most of the year, a lot of us have looked at and been like, why is, how is this trade the way it does? Not from a valuation standpoint on Tesla, for example. It's been really more the element of its liquidity. And its liquidity, uh, it, it, for it to like, you know, several days in the, in the last month, for it to outtrade on a value basis, the next 12 largest stocks in the S&P 500 is a sign of poor health in the market. Well, it's just a sign of just a sign of of gambling. This is, as you said, it's a great casino. It's a it's a liquid casino. Dave Portnoy has endorsed it as a casino. Everyone likes gambling, and the problem is that regulators actually are tasked with. Not not just for the stock market. Look, if I go into the in casino general, and I bet red and black, I have better chances on making money than I do buying AMC at at twelve billion. That's true, but not. But in general, buying stocks is a, especially commission free or low fee, is a better vig, right? And the stock market in general does go up. And that is so, correct. That is correct. You know, responsible investing is a better is a better. Um, but yeah, but but what that obviously moves towards is irresponsible investing, which becomes gambling. And the regulators, part of their job is to protect individual investors. That's why mutual funds exist. And, and that's why being an accredited investor is required to get into a hedge fund and everything else. But the fact that you as an investor can put your 100% of your net worth 
into Robinhood, but, and I just kind of got credited to be an options trader on Robinhood and answered as if, you know, in the, in the most detrimental way possible, basically saying, yes, I have no money. I can't afford to lose it. I have no job. And they're like, okay, great. You can trade options. But, but isn't right? it just so, part of the struggle of do it yourself and the profession that is managing money, which everybody yeah, who does are, anything are, in life is views themselves at some point as a professional. I, I mean, that goes back to another thing that Shamath basically endorsed on CNBC that he came out and he said, look, these people, I'm in this business and the Wall Street bets people do better work, some of them, than the hedge fund analysts that I deal with. Right. Well, that that's either a lie or what he's misstating is that the Wall Street analysts are telling him the truth about the companies that he's promoting and he doesn't like to hear it. <laughs> right. So there are a few well, ways to interpret that. No, but there's, okay, but there's I, really I, I no understand, work I understand being, what you're saying, but the, like the, there's there, no work there are being people done. who... Correct. I mean, there is no work was, being done right now. There's a guy interviewed, you know, in a story I read today. He's like, oh, I went on the forum and I realized I do a lot of good work. And then he, you know, went on to say, you know, he talked about how uh, the stock was heavily shorted. And if we bought a bunch that it, it would probably go up a lot. And that's the work that's being done. They're not, they're not talking about, as you said, credit card data and, you know, the, the tirade of new package software sales to new consoles or anything like that. They're talking about how to manipulate the market to make money. And so, yeah, I, I think it's, it, it's a misnomer. And whatever, just like everything else these days, there's a lot of bad information out there. And there are a lot of people who are not willing or able to interpret information in a way that that is actually- Well, I mean, some people have, ter- have turned it into this populist element of, you know, you've applied the, what we've seen in politics, move into the market and be like, well, anybody can do this. And you're just trying to put down someone trying to rise up when they post a thesis online. Yeah, but that's fine. Then why, why you know, at the same time, I feel like you can be like, hey, you know what? Anyone can drive a car. You know, an 11-year-old made three grand trading GameStop. Why can't my 11-year-old drive a car? Anyone can do it, right? And, and at some point you say, well, because it's dangerous and because we live in a society where there are broader implications to people's actions. And that's why we have these rules that we've all agreed to. And they're rules that have been you know, set up, yes, to benefit the, the powerful. And I, I understand that criticism. But a lot of them have been set up actually to protect the, le- the less powerful. And you know, you, you can't just say, oh, well, you know, anarchy is great. All right, let's, let's all go with it. We should all do whatever we want. And, and I think that's, that's what we're going to learn eventually. So uh, I do have to hop off though, guys. Oh, okay. I'm ready late. Appreciate it as always. Yeah, that's a, thanks so much, Jamie. That was great. Disclosures on this episode. Jamie is short GameStop, a small position he opened after the squeeze last week. Akram has no positions in any stocks mentioned. I am long Dropbox, which, yes, sad, is in the short bucket for most funds. Nothing on this podcast is investment advice. Stay tuned for our regular weekly episode, a talk with a rare earths market expert, coming out on Wednesday this week to give a little bit of space between the episodes. Be careful out there, and thank you for listening. <laughs>